Lord, as we come to this uh, chapter uh, 17 and we look at Mystery Babylon, Lord, you give us lots of clues here as to who she might be. And so help us to, to wade through uh, this text today and see if we can discover who Mystery Babylon is, Lord. But more importantly, that we can look at this lady, this harlot, and, and determine maybe where we're at in our lives, Lord. Uh, Help us to, to just, just always be working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Lord. It's real easy to point fingers at other churches, other denominations, and, and not to take a close look at ourselves. And, Lord, we want to be true believers, people who are truly born again, truly on fire for Jesus Christ, Lord. We want, we want to uh, be the kind of people that, that uh, live our lives totally for you. And, Lord, time is short. We know that the end is near. And so, Lord, help us to be those kind of watchmen that you've called us to be. Lord, we just thank you for the grace we have in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that uh, through that grace, uh, we know that we're going to escape the wrath to come. And so we're in some difficult passages, Lord, but, but we can look up because uh, we know our redemption draweth nigh. Father, we just thank you for your word again. And uh, we uh, ask you to bless our study. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, and we will be in chapter number 17 today, the book of Revelation chapter number 17. American author William Phelps, who also was a professor at Yale for 30 years, was one Christmas at, at the Christmas break grading semester papers, and uh, he noticed a note at the bottom of one of his tests that he had given out, and the student had written these words. He said, only God knows the answer to this question. And he said, Merry Christmas. And Phelps responded, he said, then God gets an A and you get an F. Happy New Year. Well, in today's lesson, we're going to try to answer the question, who is Mystery Babylon? You've probably heard of Mystery Babylon. In fact, in chapter 14, we looked at Mystery Babylon. And some people uh, might say at this point, why bother? Because only God knows the answer to that question. But I think today, as we look at these clues, and we'll look at Mystery Babylon again, we'll look at the fall of Mystery Babylon in chapter number 8. But I believe as we look at these clues today, that we can more than likely figure out just who Mystery Babylon is. Now, when we were introduced to that subject back in chapter 14, I raised four possibilities. These are the most common uh, answers to this question as to the identity of Mystery Babylon. The first is, and a lot of people believe this way, that it is literal Babylon. Babylon that today uh, sits in modern-day Iraq. Now, that is nothing but a set of ruins, and so I, don't, I think it's highly unlikely that it's that city. We'll see some other reasons I, today that I think it's not uh, literal Babylon, but there are a lot of people who still adhere to the fact that it is literal Babylon in modern-day Iraq. Uh, the second possibility is that it's the city of Jerusalem. Uh, I pretty much rule that out, too, uh, uh, because... Uh, we're going to see some clues, I think, that will uh, pretty much make us sure, give us surety that it's not 
Jerusalem. The third possibility is that it's a city in the United States of America, a city like New York City, and that's the city most commonly, uh, the city in the United States most commonly uh, uh, identified as the Babylon. So uh, maybe it is New York City. Now, I kind of tend to think it isn't New York City when I'm in Chapter 17, and then when I got to Chapter 18, it kind of looks like it might be New York City. I don't think it is, and I think we're going to narrow down uh, maybe uh, and determine who it is today as we look at these clues, and that leads us to the fourth possibility, and that is, is that it's the city of Rome, and uh, I think it's highly, unli- I mean, it's highly likely that it is the city of Rome, and I think we'll see that as we look at these clues today, but let's dig into the clues, and, and, and I'll let you make your own decision. Uh, as to who you think the uh, great Harland is. So let's begin in chapter 17, and let's read verse number 1. We're going to get some clues right away. He says, then one of the seven angels. Now, I think we know who who this angel is. Uh, There were seven angels who were holding the bowls of wrath, or about to pour out the bowls of wrath. We know which one this is because it's the seventh bowl, Uh, where we have the destruction of the great Babylon. You see that in chapter uh, 16, verse number 19. So when he says this is one of the seven angels, I believe it's the seventh angel. And it's interesting because if you look at that phrase, who had, it says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls and talked with me, saying to me, said, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Well, that phrase there where it says who had is a participle, and I don't want to bore you with with a Greek lesson here, but it's important because really the way that translates is then one of the seven angels having the seven bowls. So so this angel at this point has this bowl in his hand, and he's about to pour this bowl out. And when we we get to uh, chapter 18, we see the destruction, the fall of Babylon, so that's when the bowl is poured out. So right now we're looking at clues as to who the identity of this woman is before she's actually destroyed. So we're going to see her destroyed when the seventh bowl judgment is poured out, and we'll see that in chapter number 18. But now look at the clues that we get here next. He says, come and I will show you the judgment of this great harlot who sits on many waters. So what's the first clue that we get here? The first clue we get as to the identity of Mystery Babylon is that she is a harlot. And she's not just any harlot, she's a great harlot. Now in the Bible, when when the Bible refers to a harlot in terms of of nations and in terms of individuals, it's speaking of people who leave their true husband and chase after other lovers. And in in, in a biblical context, it means people or nations or, or, uh, or cities that leave their true husband, who is God, and they chase after other lovers for wealth and power instead of chasing after God. Now, there are a lot of individuals. There are a lot of nations. I mean, you take Jerusalem, a lot of cities. Jerusalem, for example, Israel, the United States of America, some of us, we've chased after other lovers instead of chasing after God. And so, I think all of us, to some degree, are guilty of playing the harlot. And that's what 
when, he's, when the Bible speaks of a harlot, that's what it's talking about there, chasing after other lovers or idols instead of God. Now, that doesn't help us much as in determining the identity of Mystery Babylon because just about every city and every nation has done that. So that clue doesn't help too much. But look at the next clue. This one does help. It says, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Now, here's the clue. Who sits on many waters. I don't know if you've ever, I'm going to tell you what, you could go home and you could Google it today and you could take a picture of the city of Jerusalem and you'd have a hard time finding any water around it. That is a desert land. And so I think it pretty much rules out Jerusalem. Also, if you were to go to Google and you were to look up the city of Babylon or look up the ruins of Babylon in ancient, in ancient Babylon in Iraq, you wouldn't find any water around there, any, anywhere near around there either. And so I think it rules out Babylon and it also rules out Jerusalem. But does it rule out New York City? Now you look at New York City, it's surrounded by many waters. If it was L.A., L.A. is surrounded by many waters. So you can't rule out L.A. and you can't rule out New York City and you can't rule out Rome because Rome, there are all sorts of lakes around Rome. There's rivers that run through Rome and Rome sits pretty close to the Mediterranean. And so you can't really rule out Rome either. But there's something more than just a picture of a city sitting on, by water here. Look at verse, jump ahead with me to verse number 15. And, and it means something more than that because look at what he says in verse number 15. He says, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so this city, this is the point that the angel is making, this city has its reach, it reaches out to many nations, many peoples, many multitudes, and many tongues. And so, so uh, it's a, it has a far-reaching impact on the world. So that's the clue we want to hang on to that. Now, Rome certainly fits that. New York City certainly fits that. Jerusalem really doesn't fit that. Jerusalem doesn't impact the world. The world is bothered by Jerusalem, but there's Jerusalem, what Jerusalem does really doesn't impact the world. What happens in New York impacts the world. What happens in Rome impacts the world, and we'll see that later on. All right, now let's look at the next clue in verse number two. He says, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So what's this fornication? They, uh, the, the next clue is that she commits fornication with the kings and with the people. Look, here's what it means. Instead of giving herself to God, uh, and what she does, she gives herself to kings. And she does that for wealth and power. Now, more than likely, this tells us that this is some type of religious organization that has great power over the people, and the rulers of the world trade off some of their power to gain the influence of this woman so that they can have more power. I don't know if that's making sense or not. She just has so much influence that she, she's in bed with all of these rulers of the world, and they're trading power for power. It's basically what's happening right here. Now read verse number three. Is this, and we'll see the next clue. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast 
which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, does that beast look familiar? That's the beast that came up out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. That's the kingdom of the Antichrist. And here you see this woman sitting on the beast. Now that tells us something. And here's where some people are confused. They will label Mystery Babylon as the beast. Mystery Babylon is not the beast. She sits on the beast. And so she's not the kingdom of the Antichrist. She comes in power with the kingdom of of the Antichrist. So when the Antichrist comes into power, she takes power over the world. Now, look at verse number four. It says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, all of that right there, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet. When you see purple and scarlet, what do you think of? You think of war, royalty and you think of wealth. Uh, she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. You think of wealth and you think of power. Uh, uh, and she's holding this golden cup and it's full of abominations. So we want to take a look at that for just a minute. Now, the, if you were to look at a fully dressed uh, Jewish high priest, he would, he would have some of these colors on him. He would be wearing some purple and he would be wearing scarlet. But I think we pretty much have ruled out Jerusalem and I don't think this refers to the Jewish priesthood. You know, I'm going to head into something right now. I've got to tell you when I get into this. In my younger years, I would have kind of just roll over the top of this and, and try to be as nice and kind as I could be. And I'm still going to try to be as nice, as kind, nice and kind as I can be, but I'm not going to dodge the issue here. Uh, I'm going to tell it like I see it, and, and in the end, here's what I want you to see. This lady, this harlot, isn't just one religion, although I believe there's one religion who's going to be at the forefront of this harlot. This is a worldwide religion that we're going to be talking about. I'm already giving you the answer. But uh, I'm going to be pretty frank here, and, and we're going to look at this, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to tell it like it is. Is that okay? Everybody yeah. good with that? All right, now, we can rule out, I don't believe this is a picture of the Jewish priesthood, but if you were to look at pictures of the people at the top tier of the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, you would see them clothed exactly like this. Uh, they would be arrayed in purple and in scarlet, and they would be adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now, now you can look at this as a general picture of, of a harlot who has wealth, but I think it's more uh, specific than that. I think they're, when it says they're arrayed, their priesthood is dressed this way. Now, the reason I say that, because in context, look at what she's holding. She's holding a golden cup full of abominations. Now, if you were to go on the Internet and you were to look at a picture of the Pope, or a picture of the cardinals, 
and you would see them giving communion, you would see them giving communion in a golden cup, and that golden cup would have jewels on it. So it would be adorned with jewels. And so I personally believe that this is a clue that this is either the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church that we're looking at right here. Now, here's another clue that we're given right here. It says that it's a golden cup full of abominations. Well, that simply could mean that this harlot is full of all sorts of ungodliness and things that are abominable to God They're in, their, in their theology, in the way they do church, in the way they uh, uh, fornicate with the leaders of this world. And so, so you could say that's what it means when it says that they're holding a cup full of abomination. But I think there's, something, there's a deeper meaning right here. Something much deeper is going on. And I think this is a picture of the bishops and the cardinals and the popes who often give their communion in a golden cup. Now, why is it an abomination? And, it, and to the Lord, it's an abomination. I'm, I'm really, I know I'm probably stepping on some toes here. Hang, hang with me. Here's the problem. Here's why the cup they hold is an abomination. The Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics and some of the Anglicans and Episcopalians, they believe in a thing called transubstantiation. They believe that when you take communion, and the priest blesses the wine, it turns into the blood of Jesus Christ. And they believe that when the priest blesses the bread, it turns into the broken body or the flesh of Jesus Christ. And that's called transubstantiation. And I believe, and I'm, I know I'm probably getting myself in trouble here, but I believe that that is an abomination Amen. to the Lord. And, and let me give you two reasons why I believe it's an abomination to the Lord. First of all, it requires that Christ in some way remains on the cross and that he continues to suffer in order to provide that blood and provide that flesh for the communion. And that's why when you see a cross, a Roman Catholic cross, or a Greek Orthodox cross, on most of those crosses, Christ is still hanging on that cross because they see him as getting back up on that cross in order to provide the flesh and the blood that you eat and drink at communion. And I know where they're coming from. They're coming from John chapter 6 where Jesus said, you know, in order to be part of my kingdom, you've got to eat of my flesh, you've got to drink of my blood. But he was talking these things he said are spiritual. And when we take communion, we're remembering that. We don't actually believe that the, the wine is changed to blood and that the bread uh, is changed to the flesh of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on the cross, you remember what he said. When he had suffered for the sins of the world, we're told in John chapter 19, knowing that all things had been accomplished, what did he say? He didn't scream it out or anything. He simply said, it is finished. It is finished. When he said it is finished, what he meant by that is that the price had been paid for all the sins 
of the world. All the sins of the world. He's not going to pay for any more sins. They've all been paid for. Past, present, and future. That's why the author of Hebrews says, and, and if, you, if you struggle with this issue, go and read the book of Hebrews. Because it's addressed very bluntly and blatantly in the book of Hebrews. But, and that's why the author of Hebrews says, he says, Christ was offered once, once, never to be offered again. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And he goes on to say, by his work we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. He's never getting back up on that cross again. That means there's no more blood to be shed. There's no more body to be broken. All right, now, the second reason that transubstantiation is an abomination to the Lord, I'm going to tell you why, because it, people who practice or, or the practice of it very subtly turns salvation not into an act of faith but an act of works. Salvation and sanctification become an act of works. You know, and, and the Roman Catholics aren't the only people who believe this, so I'm not, again, I'm not just picking on Roman Catholics. I'm really not picking on anybody. I mean, we can, we can sit and struggle about things that go on in Calvary Chapel. But I believe that when we're looking at this harlot, we are talking about Rome, and you're going to see that when we, when we finish this. All right, now, people of that faith believe that you're saved when you're made a member of that church. So see, it's not, how are we saved? We're not saved by our works. So, so when someone's baptized into the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, they believe that they're saved at that point. Now, how, a baby cannot have faith in Jesus Christ, and we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. We believe that our sanctification takes place, how? By our works or by faith? It takes place by faith. I'm sanctified. I'm being made perfect. I was saved by faith. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross in the fact that it was finished, and thank goodness it was finished because I continue to sin, and he paid for all my sin. But when I put my faith in the cross and I put my faith in his blood, I was saved at that moment. And you can't, and my baptism came after that. Just like circumcision came after Abraham's faith, your baptism comes after you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, now, that's true for sanctification. Now, what's sanctification? Sanctification is a process by which I'm made holy. Without holiness, you will not see God. You have to be made holy. That is a work of the Spirit of God. It is not a work of communion. You understand how that very subtly turns into works? Because if you're taking communion and you're drinking the wine and you're eating the bread and you're thinking that's making you more holy, then you're placing your faith in works and not in faith itself. In other words, you're placing your faith in your liturgy instead of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a very subtle difference, but it's a major difference. And that's why you see so many people in these denominations that think they're saved by being a member of a church and that they're sanctified by taking communion, and yet you see no change in their lives. 
They've never been truly born again. They've never been changed. And that's why it's so dangerous. This belief in transubstantiation is so dangerous because it leads a lot of people into faith in their liturgy and their membership in their church, and that will not save you. Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again, and that we're sanctified by the Spirit of God. We're not sanctified by taking the bread and drinking the wine. All right, now, that's one clue. Let's go to verse number 5. We get another clue. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, if it's Mystery Babylon, that rules out literal Babylon, doesn't it? So all those who think it's literal Babylon, why would it be called Mystery Babylon if it's not a mystery. It's a mystery because we don't know who she is. It's not literal Babylon, so we know that. All right, then you've got to ask the question, why in the world is this harlot called Babylon in the first place? Where does she get that name if it's not literal Babylon? Well, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis and the Tower of Babel to figure that out. What happened at the Tower of Babel? What did man do? Mankind decided that they were going to build a tower all the way to God. And that was symbolic of the fact that they were going to reach up and they were going to become gods. They were going to make it to heaven all on their own. They didn't need God to get to heaven. They were going to build a tower all the way to heaven. They really thought in their mind that somehow they could build a tower all the way to heaven and they could dwell in heaven. People are still doing that today. And that's what Mystery Babylon does. Mystery Babylon is a religion that tries to reach all the way up to God through works and not through faith. And so that's why she's called Babylon. And she's also the mother of harlots. Look at what that says. She's a mother of harlots. And so that means that she's birthed all sorts of other religions or all sorts of other cities or organizations, however you want to read this. I think it's a religion, a worldwide religion, and I'll show you that later on. But, but she's birthed all sorts of other false religions, and they're going to all join together in the Great Tribulation and they're going to be led by the false prophet. Now, who's the false prophet? I'm not even going to go there. All right, now, listen. This is not just a Catholic thing. This is not just a Greek Orthodox thing. Today, there are leaders in the Protestant denominations uh, who are calling for the church to unite as one church. There are leaders in the Protestant denominations who are, are uh, joining in with the other denominations and condemning Israel. And I've got to tell you, my Bible says that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. So I don't know what Bible they're reading, but there's a lot of Protestant denominations that have adopted this replacement theology, and I think they're, they're, on, they're, on they're, they're going to fit right in in this one world church in the end. Uh, there are a lot of Protestant denominations today that are adopting relativism. Relativism is that, that uh, sin is what society says it is. Sin isn't what the Bible says it is. I mean, in other words, what you t pick and choose what you want to believe in this Bible. And that leads you to universalism, which says everybody's going to make it to heaven. Everybody's not going to make it to heaven. And so when you start adopting all of these things, you just, you just uh, 
fit right in with this one world church that we're going to see in these last days. All right, now, let's go to verse number six. And I, watch this clue. This clue. This clue helps a lot right here to figure out who this is. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, like in this condition, here's John now in the first century, I was amazed. I marveled at her with great amazement. Now here was John, and he was being persecuted by the pagan Roman government, and he was being persecuted by the Jews, and he looks into the future, and he sees this great harlot, this, this church, and he sees this church throughout history persecuting the true saints of God. Now, I don't, I, I, maybe you could apply that to Jerusalem, and you could apply that to the, to, to the Jews, but that persecution was over in 70 A.D., so he sees this in the future continuing on throughout history. Now, I'll ask you a very simple question, and I don't know if you've studied much history, but if you look at history, ask yourself what city or organization has been guilty of shedding the blood of the saints of God throughout history? And, and, and uh, uh, I think you can figure that out. I mean, when... The edict, at the edict, when the Edict of Milan was made in 313, the Roman Catholic Church became the official religion of Rome. And you would have thought at that point the persecution would have stopped, but it only got worse. Throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church, up until recently, there have been millions and millions of believers who have been martyred for the simple crime of believing that this word is the word of God. You realize that for centuries in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church made it a crime to even have a Bible. And if you were caught printing a Bible, you were killed. And so millions, I mean, read about the Inquisitions. Millions of people had their heads taken off. They were burned at the stake. They were martyred. Uh, at the hands of Rome. And it's only going to get worse in the Great Tribulation. When you have this one world religion, whoever heads this thing up, you're going to see, first of all, uh, the Antichrist is going to come after the Jew. But we're told that after, he's, after the Jews have been uh, escaped from his hands, God's going to deliver them, after he's going to deliver a remnant of Jews, after he's going to deliver them into the wilderness, we don't know exactly where, but after that, he's going to turn his wrath upon the saints of God, upon those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so you're going to see millions of tribulation saints killed at that time. Now, isn't this fun? Y'all hang in there now because we're, we're, you know what happens? A lot of people quit on this uh, about now. And they miss out the really good part. We're heading there. I'm telling you, we got like two more chapters. Y'all hung in there like champs, but we got like two more chapters, and then we'll be getting into the really, really good stuff. But, but hang on till then. All right, now let's go to verse 7 and 8. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman 
and of the beast that carries her. He's gonna he's gonna tell he's gonna give he's gonna he's gonna tell John who this is and who she is now to him. He says, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. That's the kingdom of the Antichrist. So we know that. We, were, we studied that back in chapter number 13. The beast that you saw, now watch this, it was a great empire. Then it's not a great empire. And then it will be a great empire again when it ascends out of the bottomless pit and it goes and, and ultimately it will go to perdition. It will go to hell. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. I mean, they're going to marvel at this beast. This beast is going to be, it was an empire. It, it's going to be an empire. It, it, it was not an empire. And then it's going to be an empire. And when the world sees this empire revived, they're going to marvel at this empire unless your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then you're going to see it for what it is. You're going to see it for an evil empire. We can see that now. As we see this one world order coming into place, there are people in the church who are embracing this one world order, and there are people in the church that are going, whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life who are truly saved who are going, oh, no. When I used to hear George Bush say, talk about the one world order, about the new world order, I cringed. I said, oh, no. The reason I cringed is because my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and God has given me a spirit of discernment that I can see through this, and you ought to be able to see through this. And so he says, he says, and the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend. Now, what empire is that? What empire does that have to be? That has to be Rome. We know from Daniel chapter 9 that it's Rome because we know that the people who, the Antichrist is going to come from the people who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. We're told that in Daniel chapter 9, a long time before it ever happened. You've got that amazing prophecy there. So we know it's a Roman Empire, and that fits this perf perfectly. He says, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the, I like that, from the foundation of the world. You know if you're a born-again believer, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. So don't worry about your salvation. I mean, you, you were written down to be saved before the foundation of the world. Why were you written down to be saved before the foundation of the world? Because God knew that you would choose Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you hadn't chosen Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your name wasn't written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Because God already knew that you would do that. Does that make sense? <laughs> Back to this one more time. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written on the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. When they see this revived Roman empire, when they see it come into uh, existence, then the world is going to love this kingdom. They're going to marvel at this kingdom. They're going to be amazed at how wonderful this kingdom is. And we know that it's the Roman Empire. And we know that it's going to be an evil kingdom. More evil than any kingdom that has ever existed on this earth. Why do we know that? Because its roots are in the bottomless pits. Its roots are in hell. And so it's a demonic kingdom. And it's a ruthless kingdom. It's a kingdom that's going to be set 
on the destruction of mankind. And God's going to allow all of this to take place. And those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life we're going to receive this kingdom. They're going to embrace this kingdom, hook, line, and sinker. And here comes the harlot, and she's going to be riding on this beast when this beast comes into power. Now look at verse number 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The heaven, the set in the heaven, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, seven mountains, you could translate that seven plots of land. Uh, that certainly fits Rome. For centuries, you've probably heard this before, for centuries Rome has been called the city on seven hills. And so there's certainly that application. But I think there's something more here because of what we saw in verse 15. There's seven continents in the world. And this woman sits on all seven continents. In other words, she, is, she has a prominent position on all seven continents. That's why it looks like a one-world religion to me. Now look at the next clue in verse number 10. There are also seven kings. Uh, five have fallen. One is, and the, and the other has not yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. It, when, in John's day, at this point, when he's seeing this vision, Rome had had several, seven powerful one-world emperors at that point. They'd had Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, and then came the Flavian dynasty. And then look what he says here in verse number 10. He says, five have fallen. That's really interesting because, because five of those em emperors either were assassinated or committed suicide. Julius Caesar was assassinated, then you had Tiberius, Caliglia, Claudius, and Nero who committed suicide. And then the one that is, in John's day, would be Domitian, who was this one world great emperor. And then there's one yet to come. Now, there were other emperors. But there's one yet to come, the angel is telling John, who's going to be the greatest of them all. He's going to be like the others. Uh, and we know that him to be the Antichrist. And he will rule, he says here, for a short time, which we know is seven years. Isn't that kind of an amazing prophecy right there? And now look at verse number 11. The beast who that was and is not, Rome that was and is not going to be and then will be, that leader of that beast himself will also be the eighth great one world emperor. He will be the eighth. And he's the same as the seventh. Now all you have to do is go back and read your uh, history books and study Julius Caesar and Tiberius and Caliglia and all these guys, especially Nero. And you'll see how ruthless and terrible and destructive these men were. I mean anything that got in their way they killed and and this one, this eighth one who is the Antichrist, he's going to be just like them. But guess where he's heading? He's heading to hell. He's on the way to hell just like, and guess what? He's going to join the other seven there because he says they've all gone to perdition. Then in verse number 12, we get another clue. Verse number 12, it says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Now we're, we're moving forward to the great tribulation. 
He says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet. They're going to receive their kingdom during the Great Tribulation. But they received authority for one hour. Now, an hour in prophecy is just a short time. We're talking about seven years. As kings with the beast. They're going on to verse 13. Now, watch this. They are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And so, this kingdom of the Antichrist is going to have, you're going to have the Antichrist in charge, and you're going to have these ten puppet kings, and so it's going to be set up like any other totalitarian government you've ever seen. You remember the Soviet Union back when they were prominent. Uh, some of you aren't old enough to remember the USSR, but the USSR had five vassal states, and five, I'm sorry, 15 vassal states, and each one of those states had a king, so they had 15 kings. But all those kings were of one mind. Whose mind were they of? They were of the king of Russia's. Uh, they were of his mind. They, they answered to the Kremlin. And whatever the Kremlin said, they agreed to. Whatever, when the Kremlin said do something, they did it. When the Kremlin said don't do something, they didn't do it. And this kingdom of the Antichrist is going to be just like that, but it's only going to be for a short time. All right, because these kings think they're something. They think they're kings. But there's another king sitting on his throne. And when all of this is taking place and when this kingdom rises up and it takes power on this earth, then there's another king who's getting ready to return to this earth. We see that now in verse uh, number uh, 14. These will make war with the lamb. Now, how are they going to make war with the lamb? When they begin to destroy God's people, when they make war against the Jews, they're making war against the lamb. When they make war against the church, they're making war against the lamb. But in the end, the Lamb will overcome them because he's not just any king. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and those who are with him when he comes. Hey, guess who that is? That's you and me. They are called chosen and they are called faithful. Why are we called chosen? Because our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why were we, chose, why were we chosen? Because Paul says in chapter 1 of Ephesians verse 13, having believed. We were chosen by our, because of our faith. Having believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. We were, and when God puts his seal on you, that stamp is on you forever. And God saw himself putting that stamp on you before the foundation of the world. So he saw you believing. He's omniscient and he saw, sees into the future. And he knew that you were going to receive Jesus Christ. And so you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And that means you are faithful. Why are you faithful? Because you're such a strong, wonderful person? No. You're faithful because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he who began a good work in you is going to complete that work to the end. You're going to make it. You're not only going to make it, you're going to come riding in with Christ when he comes and he puts down the Antichrist and he puts down these kings and he rules and reigns forever and ever. Pretty good deal, huh? All right. Verse number 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this is a religious organization that has 
tentacles that reach out to many nations, many people groups, many languages. So it's a, I believe there's no doubt this is the one world religion of the Antichrist. It's a harlot. It's a, a religion that started out well. It started out being a godly religion. And that happens to Baptists, it happens to Catholics, it happens to all sorts of individuals. But it, they never were truly saved, they never were really right, their theology was never really right, and so at some point they turn on God. And so uh, that's what we see in verse number 15. And then we get to verse number 16. And it says, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. Now, the harlot's going to only have power for a short period of time. Why does the Antichrist bring the harlot in and, and have this act of fornication with this harlot, this act of giving her power so that she will give him influence over the people? Why does he does that? Uh, does that? Because he loves the harlot? No. Does a person who goes to a harlot love the harlot? No, they use the harlot. And so this harlot is only being used for the Antichrist purpose. When he's done with her, he's going to discard her. He's going to throw her away. He's going to destroy the harlot. And he's going to destroy the followers of the harlot. And that's what we see uh, in verse number 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Now, how, why in the world would God allow that? God allows that because she's a harlot. Because she's not truly of God. She's not, the people in, most of the people, or some of the people, in this false religion, in this one world religion, at this point, they've taken the mark of the beast, so they're all, uh, uh, all of them don't have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, so none of them are saved at this point. So that's why God allows their destruction. And, and this, this shows us that this this whole great tribulation, when we look at this, it looks like, in, from one standpoint, that God is just supernaturally pouring out his wrath on the world through supernatural plagues. I don't believe so. We talked about that last week. I believe all God has to do is to sit back and watch this happen. And, and, and he sits back to a certain point and so that there's somebody left on this earth. At that point, he does return. But, but when the harlot's destroyed, God doesn't have to do anything. The Antichrist and his armies are going to destroy the harlot. All right, and you see that in the next verse. It says, because for God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose. And, and uh, he's put not only for that, but to be of one mind and to give the kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so everything that's happened, happening here are men, are men doing this to men. Women doing this to women. And uh, God has put it in their hearts to do these terrible things. And I, you know what? I don't even think when he, it says he puts it in their heart, I don't think he has to do anything. I think when it says he puts it in their heart, all he does, he doesn't put anything in their heart. And by not putting anything in their heart, if, if, without light, what do, we, what do you have? You have darkness. And so when God doesn't put light into somebody's heart he's actually putting darkness into their heart although they're the ones who in reality have hardened their hearts towards God God hasn't done that towards them all right now we get the final clue 
And this is the censure right here. Here's John, the angel speaking to John, and watch the tenses of these verbs here. The woman whom you saw is, present tense, in John's day. The woman whom you saw is the great, great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. What city in John's day reigned over the kings of the earth. No doubt it is Rome. Amen. It's Rome. I'm, I don't even know how to amen that. It's, I mean, I, 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 I believe it's Rome. I agree with that. But in the end, it's not going to be just Rome that faces the wrath of God. It's going to be every city on this earth that faces the wrath of God. It's not going to be just the Roman Catholic Church that's destroyed. It's going to be all false religions that are destroyed. All the components of false religions that are destroyed. There are certainly some good people in the Roman Catholic Church. There are certainly some good people in the Baptist Church and in the Methodist Church and the Calvary Chapel Church. But the element of any church that's false, that's antichrist, in the end, will be destroyed. Yeah, I, I, I didn't come here, and I, again, I hesitate. Man, I, these are the kind of chapters. This is when I wish I didn't teach verse by verse. But these are the kind of chapters I would just skip over. And, and a lot of people know what I'm saying here today is true. A lot of expositors, and, if you go, and, and they'll approach this maybe with kid gloves on, and I think maybe if you listen to the tape from the last time I did Revelation, I approached it with kid gloves on. But, I, you know, there's no denying who this is. And so you can, you can dance around it all you want. But this is speaking of Rome. And it's speaking of the harlot who rides on Rome. Rome is going to be the center of the earth during the Great Tribulation. And the harlot is going to come riding in with the Antichrist into Rome. And so... My intention here is not to bash Catholics, not, not at all. But you can't deny that this is about a one-world religion, and you can't deny that it's headquartered in Rome. Now, two and two is four. And so if I look over in Rome and I say, what religion is headquartered in Rome, then it's right there in the middle of Rome is the Vatican, and it's the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I believe that what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation is that all the churches that are left on this earth after the rapture are going to become part of this one world church of the Antichrist. So it's not going to just be the Roman Catholics. It's going to, the one, this one world church is going to unite Roman Catholics with the Orthodox, with the Episcopalians, with the Anglicans, with the Lutherans, and then some of your more conservative Protestant denominations at this point. They're heading that way right now. Uh, the Methodists, the Baptists, they'll even be, if there's any Calvary chapels left, they'll, they'll even be some Calvary chapels. And there'll certainly be people from the Calvary chapel movement who are part of this one world church movement because they're part of it now. You see people right now who are, who are, uh, who are, are part of this this movement to, to 
to have one ecumenical church. And everyone in the Great Tribulation who's here and takes the mark of the beast will be part of this church. So you could very well call it, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the First Church of the Antichrist. It's like a First Baptist of Lafayette. Give it a name, the first church of the Antichrist, because ultimately it's going to be about the worship of the Antichrist. Ultimately, it's going to begin with the worship of every individual on this earth. That's what we do now. That's what we're guilty of now. We worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. And, 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 and in, this, in this great tribulation, it's going to be, if you're not right with God and you're not taken out of here at the rapture, it's going to be real difficult not to, not to keep yourself from becoming part of this this one world church because it's already in the making and it's already reaching every nation and tongue and people and religion. How do you spot the first church of the Antichrist? Is Antichrist. Is Antichrist. I mean, it says Christ is not the only way, the truth, the life. That's Antichrist. Uh, this word is relative. That's Antichrist. Everybody's going to make it to heaven. I wish everybody didn't make it to heaven, but everybody's not going to make it to heaven. Universalism, that is antichrist. And here's the real kicker. Whenever you see somebody in religion and their purpose in being part of that religion is prestige or power or recognition, that is antichrist. That is the Babylonian uh, church member, the person who's trying to reach heaven and reach prosperity on their own without God. So if you're okay with any of those things, then I've got news for you. You're probably already part of the first church of the Antichrist. And if I was in your shoes, what I would do here today, I would change my membership immediately. And not so much to Calvary Chapel, but to that church that's described for us over in the book of Hebrews. That's the church you want to be a member of. The church of the general assembly of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Just men made perfect by the blood, man and women, made perfect by the blood, uh, by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the true church of Christ. And that's the church you want to belong to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this difficult world, word that we looked at today and this difficult part of Scripture. But, Lord, it's every bit as true as the rest of the things that we look at in our Bible. And so... Lord, I, I think it's a warning for all of us, Lord, to, to not point fingers at other denominations or other churches or other people, Lord, but to look at our own lives and make sure we're not falling into that trap of deception where we deceive ourselves into believing that somehow we're born again when we're truly not. Father, if, if we're born again, then then we know that our names are written in the Lamb of Life because, Lord, Lord, we know we've been sealed with your Holy Spirit. And we know that your word is true because your Spirit tells us your word is true. We know that there's only one way to heaven and, 
And there's only one truth, and that, that way and truth is in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's any doubt about that in our minds, then maybe there's doubt about where we are in our standing with you. So I ask today, Lord, that we all take a close look and, and be sure that we're part of the right church, the true church of Christ, Lord. The church has been sprinkled by your blood and made holy by your spirit. Father, just make us all sure of that today. And we thank you for that great blessing, Lord, and that we can rejoice that, that soon that you're going to come and you're going to call your church to be with you in heaven. And when you come back to this earth, Lord, we're going to rule and reign with you forever. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.